Hello, Anchor. How we doing, guys? I uh, uh, just got back from a vacation, two weeks, and I just want to say I am thankful to be a part of a community that believes that rest is important. This is not normative. The world does not necessarily believe that rest is important. Uh, it believes work, 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 work until you burn out, until you must necessarily take a rest. But here, we believe in this rhythm of rest and work. So I'm thankful to be a part of this community. Uh, and if you didn't know that, that's a value of ours that we have. I'm also thankful to be starting this teaching series called Rebuilding. I do believe it may sound audacious, but I believe that God will deposit something in this community and something in your heart if you lean in in this time. I believe it. I really do. Uh, as John said, the idea of rebuilding is very common. It's in the air right now as we think about nation, city, state, organization, schools, all that kind of stuff. We're all asking, what does it look like? And so when we talk and we teach and we draw from this Old Testament book called Nehemiah, we're going to be asking, what does it look like for the anchor community to, after this past year, step forward into what God has for us? So your invitation whether you didn't know it or you did know it or you had an in inclination towards it, because you walked in today, you're being invited to become a rebuilder. A rebuilder. This is a powerful term. I think of uh, the person who founded the, our family of churches. His name was A.B. Simpson. He lived in the late 19th century, and he had a notable position uh, as a pastor in a large church in New York City. Pretty comfy. There was no question about, you know, can I pay the groceries this month? There was no questions about that. But because of his time and his place, he saw a large group of people coming in from Italy, from Poland, catching the boat past Ellis Island all the way to the docks. And he found them, in, because they were new to the area, didn't speak uh, the English language fluently, they found themselves in marginalized positions with not much work and disenfranchised, even though they wanted to believe the American dream. So what did he do? He had this belief that he was going to hang among the dock workers and the prostitutes, believe that God had a message for them. And so he told his leadership board here at this church, at his church, he goes, hey, so I feel that God is calling us not just to maintenance, but to mission. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna really share the gospel and care for the practical needs with these people that are in desperate need of knowing the good news of Jesus that is a message for our hearts and our hands. And they're like, we love the concept, run with it. And he started running with it. And so he started bringing these people to his church and they're like, okay, well, we do really still love the concept concept, but the language, the smell, the different culture, we would prefer our version of normal. And so A.B. Simpson had this option where he could say, I'm going to stay with maintenance and comfortable, or I'm going to lean out and to become a rebuilder and live on mission. He left his position of comfort to live a life on mission to become a rebuilder. 
This is not just kind of like people in some type of official leadership role. There's a person, uh, a woman named Susanna Wesley. Maybe you've heard of her, maybe you haven't. But her sons, John and Charles Wesley, um, began starting what was known as the Great Awakening or the Methodist Movement. Now, Susanna Wesley had 19 kids. Can you imagine that? Deep breath, everyone. It gets even a little bit more hard because nine of them died in infancy. Imagine that. Not only that, but her house burned down twice. Her husband was in and out of debtor's prison. Can you, I mean, if any of us experienced that, it would become very tempting to believe that that's it. I'm calling it quits. I'm, I'm, my life mission is just to empty whiskey bottles and to hide away from all the noise. I, I want to just cope and escape and just do what I need to do to avoid the fact that reality and life is tough. But she didn't. She took the posture of a rebuilder, pouring her life and her faith into her children. She set up a homeschool at her home and she took a special hour a week with each one of her kids pouring all that she knew, all that she believed, all that she knew about God and this world into her kids and two of her kids were named John and Charles and they started this movement that became Methodism and you can trace a line between the abolition of slavery to the ministry of John and Charles to the home that they grew up in. And I just say, never despise the day of small things. You may be, you may be in the home with kids that are crying, but, but God, don't despise the day of small things. Rebuilders are in that place. Yeah. Rebuilders are in there. There's stories of her, she would, she would bring the apron above her head and walk into the other room and the kids knew when the apron's above mom's head, she's either praying or crying, so you don't want to talk to her. Have you ever had a moment like that? There's another story of a, a woman named Catherine Booth who, with her husband, William Booth, started the Salvation Army. You remember, ding, 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 around Christmas by Fred Meyer, yeah. Well, they looked around uh, 19th century England and saw high levels of poverty, high levels uh, of alcoholism, the fracture of the home, and they said, there has to be something about the mission of Jesus that speaks to this. It's not just a spiritual message, it's a social message. And so they leaned in as much as they could to meet those needs. And I love uh, this line that Catherine, Bush, uh, Catherine Booth lived by. She said, to better the future, we must disturb the present. Wow. That's the maxim of a rebuilder. Let me just tell you, it's, uh, it's easy to look back at people that have made some type of dent in darkness in history and be like, well, it couldn't be me. Well, you're still on the hook because... Susanna Wesley was just a mom loving her kids well. But just in case we think we're off the hook, the invitation to become a rebuilder here at Anchor Church is for millionaires and stay-at-home dads and moms. It's for teenage gamers and, and aging seniors. Everybody that is a follower of Jesus is invited to become a rebuilder. In fact, we have this value called hope. It's on our wall there. And if you go to our website, you'll read this description of what we mean when we say that hope is a value of ours. 
And it says, at Anchor Church, you might want to close your eyes, just imagine this. At Anchor Church, we believe that no marriage, no family, no person, no neighborhood or city is beyond hope. We will hold to this, not out of mere optimism, but because our hope is rooted in the one that has defeated death. We won't give up or give in. Even as we struggle, we will hold fast and tight to the hope giver. That means that if you are a part of this community, and I recognize there are people that are all in and people that are, I'm discerning if I'm all in. This is a community of rebuilders. So as we look, as we go through the next few months and go in this teaching series, we're going to be learning from this man named Nehemiah who was a rebuilder in the Old Testament and we're going to be drawing lessons from him and as he, seeing him as an example of what it looks like to live a life of rebuilding. And, and so I, I just would ask you, would you lean in for this period of time? Would you lean in? Would you ask God, God, what do you want from me in this how can I be a part of this? Integrate this into your life. This has to be more than a guy drawing lessons from a book. This is something that this teaching series, like all teaching series, but we're, there's something critical about this one. We believe that, that God wants to in, bring us into a deeper understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to become a rebuilder. So I'm going to read the first four verses of Nehemiah. Uh, you're going to have it on the screen. You can open your Bible to it however you want to. And it begins like this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and about also about Jerusalem. Okay, we'll stop there for a second. You see, God had delivered Israel from slavery, taken them through the wilderness, and brought them to the promised land. And there were conditions on Israel being in the promised land. The conditions were, you could sum up into two ways, worship Yahweh, the one who delivered you from slavery, and care for the poor, care for the marginalized, care for those without resources, look out for the foreigner, care for the widow and the orphan. These twin commands were really the same thing of what it means to worship Yahweh. We live out our worship of Yahweh and how we treat each other. These are the things that God invited Israel to do. And after decades and after centuries, they stopped worshiping Yahweh and they stopped caring for the most less fortunate. And so what happened is, though they were no longer in Egypt, their faith just looked like the Egyptians. Egypt was in their heart. And so God said, okay, well then I'm going to remove you from the land of promise and bring you into the land of exile. Anyone that's ever been a parent knows a little bit about that. And this is what Nehemiah is, is, is dealing with. He's in modern day Iran, then it was Assyria, in this fortress called the citadel, in this large bastion, this civilization that was, was notable and powerful. And he's in this fortress in modern day Iran, far away from Israel, far away from Jerusalem. And, he, and some of his brothers come to him and he's like, hey, tell me about home. It'd be like, you know, if somebody, if you moved away from the promised land of Tacoma, that was not tongue-in-cheek. 
Uh, moved away from the promised land of Tacoma and somebody, and you, somebody came visiting you and you said, Tell, hey, how is Bluebeard? Do they still have good coffee? Do they still make you wear masks and compass rose? <laughs> that landed more in the nine o'clock. <laughs> you know, like, tell me about Tacoma. What's the new cool restaurant? How is Wooden City's burgers? Are they still really good? And like, you're filled with all these nostalgia and these questions as you think about your hometown and everything that comes to mind when you think about your hometown. And Nehemiah's like, oh, tell me about it. How's everything going? And the response is, they said to me, those who survived the exile and, the back, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In the ancient world, to have a city without walls meant that you were at the mercy of whoever would come through. You're at the mercy of any marauder that would whip through town. And so a city lived and fall dependent on if it had walls, dependent on if it had something securing it. And so when he hears the walls, the gates are down, it breaks his heart. When he hears that everyone is filled with trouble and disgrace, it breaks his heart. And so he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Let me just tell you something. God can rebuild the world with broken hearts. God can rebuild the world with broken hearts. In fact, I would say the first step of becoming a rebuilder is seeing the brokenness and letting that brokenness in the world break you. Because then you have a vision of what it could be. You're not letting the normalness of sin define your understanding of reality. So the first question, if we're going to become real, or rebuilders, we have to ask the question just, what gives you heartache? What gives you heartache? Usually if you follow that thread, you find yourself on a path to becoming a rebuilder. You have to follow the thread. Years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine about a mutual friend. I know it's like math. Okay, wait, okay, so friend here, mutual friend, yeah. And we were talking about him, and, and uh, he was trapped in addiction and, and lots of other dysfunctional uh, actions and practices and decisions. And at one point, my friend said something that I want none of us to ever say. He said this, well, it's just who he is. It's just who he is. Is it? You see, it is just who he is if we let sin be the thing that defines our concept of reality, but if we believe that there is something else, there is a God who came in the presence and person of Jesus, who defeated death, who has sent his spirit to dwell among his followers and called his church to be about his mission in the world, and he still brings about change and transformation, then we don't have to say, well, that's just who he is. 
He may struggle, but let's ask a different question. Rather than that be the statement defining our reality of a person, a place, a city, a family, a neighborhood, a school, an organization, a church, that's just the way it is. What if we asked a different question? What would it look like if God began a work of transformation and people leaned in and gave their resources and their energy and their passion to what God was doing and then five years passed, what would it look like? What if we started letting that be the thing we said in the face of the world's brokenness? What if we didn't steal ourselves and callous ourselves in the face of the world's brokenness, but let it break our heart as it broke God's and breaks God's? There's this term I used, uh, I've used in the past called toxic adulting, right? Adulting is tough, but toxic adulting is the type of adulting that none of us should ever do. Toxic adulting could be described by this. It's becoming content with what God is discontent with. Becoming content with what God is discontent with. This is why when when Jesus says, hey, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to become like a little child. You have to become a kid. Why? Because kids ask questions like, why are they sleeping outside? Kids ask questions like, why were you guys yelling at each other? Kids ask questions like, why did that news say that they are hungry? What, why is there war? Kids ask questions like that because brokenness has not become their normal yet. And so to become a kingdom citizen, you have to take up the ethos and ethic and mind of a child. Kids aren't perfect as we all know, but they give us insight into a way of viewing the world where sin has not become the normative feature of our understanding and where we never say, well, that's just the way it is. There's this kingdom curiosity. What gives you heartache? Nehemiah, when he hears the pain, he doesn't say, well, yeah, well, that makes sense, you know. The world as it is, and I guess we'll just have to make go. You know, Jerusalem used to be great. It had its heyday. His heart breaks as he, see, hidden in the tears is an imagination of what could be and a knowledge of what it once was. Here's the irony. The irony is that God can rebuild anything with broken hearts. Some of us, we just need to begin praying this prayer. If, we, if, we, if, we, if, if sin has become too normal for us, if we find ourselves using those words, that's just the way it is. If we find ourselves using those words, we just need to begin praying, making a daily prayer. God, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? For some of us, it's a prayer we've heard. For some of us, it's something that we've heard somebody say. For some of us, it's new, but we just all need to maybe pray that prayer. God, would you break my heart for what breaks yours? So the next question is, okay, you know, like, what breaks, your, what breaks your heart? What gives you heartache? But then what do you do with the heartache? You know, typically, we do one of three things. We either lash out, we burn out, or we miss out. 
Years ago, I was a, a college pastor and I got to lead college students on mission trips. One of our mission trips, we went to the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which is a rough part of San Francisco. You, could, you know, I think the word Tenderloin was given to it, uh, legend says, because uh, police officers got a, a Tenderloin in addition to their compensation if they said they would work there. It was that rough. I mean, I don't know if that's a lot of incentive, but it was, you know. So we were there in the Tenderloin and we, did, we were doing something among the, many of the things that we were doing. You know, mission trips are oftentimes for the people that go on the mission trip. They're about opening our eyes and that was a lot of what we were doing. We were on this mission trip. One of the things that we did was we just did these things. That the world would say there's nothing effective in what you're doing, but as followers of Jesus, we believe there's a lot, of, a lot that's effective. We prayed. We prayed. We did these prayer walks. And we were walking around neighborhoods and we would get briefed in the morning about, hey, just so you know, this is kind of what's happening in the neighborhood you're walking around. Would you be praying for that? You might have find yourself in having conversations with people as you pray. Here's how you handle that. Somebody pulls a knife on you. This is what you do. It happened. Um, and one of the mornings while we were, one of our teams was breaking out into a prayer walk, they're like, hey, just so you know, um, on the neighborhood that you're at, there's actually a massage parlor that is heavily involved in, in human trafficking in California and in this city. If you know anything about human trafficking, it's sometimes, oftentimes, kidnapping or bringing somebody across a border and, and holding them against their will until the, the, the place that they're in becomes normal and they don't know how to escape. One of our guys on our, our, our team became incensed, angry. He, he said, how dare this happen? We need to stop it now. He ran out of the building and started running towards the massage parlor. We had to chase him down. We're like, no, do not go in there. It doesn't need Rambo. It needs somebody that's committed to the neighborhood, committed to prayer, committed to justice, committed to loving the people that are working there over a long period of time. It doesn't need somebody lashing out. Here's what happens when we lash out in the face of the world's brokenness. Oftentimes we lose track of this thing that God has given us the ability to do. It's called thinking. Right? It's called thinking. So we lash out. In fact, lash out oftentimes leads to burnout because you end up throwing all this energy and gasoline on the fire and it doesn't accomplish the thing, so you kind of like peter out. Remember, this, has been a, this is a challenge too where we, we're so familiar with so much news and so much pain and so much places that we're thinking, well, I need to start a nonprofit and I need to, I need to go you know, meet this need here and, and then this person is in it. You try to do, run in every direction at the same time and it only leads to burnout. Turns out we're humans and we need things like rest and we need to focus our energy and our attention in certain ways and say a good God-blessed no to other things. But oftentimes we find ourselves burning out. And when we burn out, we don't have the energy to give to the things that are really what God is calling us to. We lash out or we burn out or we just miss out. I've used this phrase before, but scratch a cynic and you'll find a hurt romantic. Scratch a cynic, you'll find somebody that used to believe, but now they're just calloused trying to escape, scrolling, and ignoring. God calls us to do neither of those three. To not lash out, burn out, or miss out, but to pray out. I know. Look, see, this is what Nehemiah does. 
In verse four it says, in verse five it says, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his, pay attention to these words he uses, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive, your eye open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom, by you, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. I love that line, delight in revering your name. I feel like that's what we're doing in worship. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And then it ends with this fun little last line, I was a cupbearer to the king. Twitter bio. But that prayer is characterized by the awesomeness of God. He's fixated on the awesomeness of God. Now, let me tell you, oftentimes when we're experiencing a heartache, our prayers come out a little messy. Have you ever been there? God, what's the deal? What's going on? This shouldn't have happened. Why are you not showing up in the way I just want you to? And lots of the prayers in Scripture are actually messy prayers. I love that. I love that God is like not too high and mighty to like not hear our messy prayers. Because if he was, let's be honest, he would not hear many of our prayers. But this is interesting. Nehemiah is able to, even though he's in a moment of pain, remember the character of God. God, you are awesome. God, you are worthy. Even though he's in a moment of pain, he doesn't lose track of the character of God, which, guess what? The character of God doesn't change respective to our circumstances. So even if we are left with questions, he's still who he is. And so Nehemiah remembers that. He draws that up and he honors God with his prayer. Even though he could have prayed a messy prayer and God would have heard it and there's nothing wrong with those prayers, he fixes his attention to the character of God and the awesomeness of God even as he's not feeling it as effective for himself in that moment. His prayer is characterized by the awesomeness of God. You might want to just put that down somewhere. Are my prayers of pain, how do they demonstrate the awesomeness of God? And then second, there's a humility of mind. His prayer doesn't say, how dare you, God? It's, you are awesome, and I recognize that myself, my family, my nation have erred. There's the awesomeness of God and the humility of mind, and then there's the audacity of petition. Nehemiah is not intimidated by his own sinfulness and the awesomeness of God. Rather, it charges him towards asking big things. I've heard before that if you don't ask big things of God, you won't get big things from God. 
So he says, you said you're good. You said you're faithful to your promises. I'm believing it. Would you bring us back? Would you restore us? Would you honor me with the opportunity to be a part of that? Our rebuilder prayers need to have this characteristic. Attentive to the awesomeness of God, bringing to the prayer humility of mind and an audacity of petition. Here's the interesting thing too is that Nehemiah doesn't do anything before he prays. Here's the beautiful thing. The world and the world, we kind of crown our actions with a little bit of prayer. God, thanks you for letting me have the opportunity to do the thing that I did really good at. But Nehemiah, he prays first and then he moves towards action. Here's the beautiful thing. When you pray first and then move towards action, you're recognizing at the beginning of your work that the giver of every good gift is responsible for, in fact, every good gift. And so you have to come to him saying, God, would you direct my steps? I thought this is where I was going. This is what happens when you pray before you act. You thought you knew the problem, but you thought the solution was here. And God's like, well, it's actually there. And you, if you acted first, you wouldn't have been attentive to the solution that was not the same one, but similar to the one that you thought. So he makes a point of praying. He's going to do a ton of rebuilding with his hands. He's going to get his hands dirty. He's going to work a lot in this book. But what does he do first? He prays. He prays. Here's the last point. God wants to use you. God wants to use you. The you-ness of you. Here's how I know that. The very last verse says, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer is this, is that in the ancient world, kings were always being poisoned. Um, it, was, it was a bad, it was a bad, you know, bad, bad vibe. Uh, and so you had a cupbearer who was like, I'll take, I'll take the first bite for you, you know? And um, so that's what the cupbearer did. Sweet job, right? Um, just for you, if you wanted, this one's for free. At home, I usually take some bites before it's on the table, and I say, I'm the cupbearer, guys. <laughs> I am owning that role. I am the cupbearer, and I don't know who's po- who could have poisoned this, but I just want to be the first. <laughs> so Nehemiah is the cupbearer for the king, and so he's in this interesting spot where he has access to power. He has access to resources. He has access to, to beyond our belief, but he also has the heartache of what has happened to his home. Let me just tell you, God will use your present wounds as future callings. Many of us right now are feeling the pain of marital tension, of friendship breakdown, of trouble in our home, of problems with our bank account. You keep hitting refresh and the number doesn't change. What's the deal? And all of that stuff, God won't waste it. If we bring it to God, if we bring our present heartaches to God, he'll turn our tears into jewels. And years from now, sometimes even weeks, somebody will come up to us and they'll ask us a question which is aligned with a problem that we've been through and we'll draw from the wisdom that God has deposited within us and it will bless them and keep them from the problems that we experience because they're profiting from something that they don't have to fully endure. 
Gosh, God will use you. And that's what he's doing in Nehemiah. He's using the you-ness of Nehemiah as a guy with a broken heart that happens to be a cupbearer. God will use the you-ness of you. He'll turn your tears into gems, into jewels. Can I just tell you, like, um, there's a lot that you're just going to have to settle for yourself about what this means in your life. <laughs> Sorry, it's pressure's on you. What does it look like for you? What does it look like for you to be a rebuilder, to take up that mantle in your place of work, in your home, in your neighborhood, to see, not th- see things in light of their sin, but to see what would it look like if God got a hold of that? You have to wrestle that out. And let me just tell you, there's beauty that waits for you there. But I do have one easy ball on the tee just so you can, you know, if you're wanting to deal with the little bit of tension, you know, here's, here's a way to solve it. Here at Anchor, we're, we're asking the question, like, what, God, what does it look like to rebuild? Months ago, uh, Dennis Shimamuro, who was here, I didn't mention I was going to say this, sorry, Dennis. He came up to me after a gathering and he said, Brian, just so you know, I'm praying I'm praying that lost people come to know Jesus and trust Jesus and people that are looking for a church home in this moment find a church home and that this building, this space on Sunday mornings is filled with the praises of God who have found Jesus for the first time or found him for the thousandth time, but it feels new. Wouldn't it be sweet? And of course, we don't just want to care about our seating capacity, but we care about our sending capacity. We, are, we, we believe that the best way to reach neighborhoods and, and do the work that God is inviting us to is not to build a bigger thing here, but to send out faster to places and raise up leaders. And so we're praying that God would bring church planters and people passionate about their own neighborhoods or, or a place over there to join teams. You can pray for that. You can invite your friends here. You can pray that God raises up leaders and you can join our teams. I remember I talked with Katie, our kids ministry director, a few months ago. And I was like, Katie, we need to get a kids ministry stat. We need to open it up. We need a great place for our kids. And she was like, Brian, we have five volunteers. A year ago, we had 100 before the pandemic, but people have moved. People aren't ready to come back. People are, people are, people are. I've got five people, Brian. A lot of our teams are in places where they're rebuilding. Here's the thing, is that when you serve here, that's not the only place for your gifts to shine. But what happens when you serve in this place? God will knit you together with other people and make you feel more ownership for this thing. You'll realize that it's more than just people filling up a parking lot in a room on a Sunday, but there's something sacred in serving. People are going to, one more thing. Worship team, you can come up. People are going to be asking, how can I find friends here? And you can be the answer to that. Join an anchor group. Start an anchor group. Find out more information at that at the information table. But here's the thing is that like, God wants to, God is inviting you to be a rebuilder. Would you join that work? Would you join that work? A lot of it, you have to figure out what it looks like in your life as you listen to your story and what God is doing. But it's very easy if you're a part of this community to lean in to the rebuilding work. Because let me be very clear, this is more than just a guy teaching from a book on a certain day of the week. We're participating in something quite sacred. 
as we gather to be reminded after beat up from the week, we're gathered, we gather here to be reminded that there's a greater story than what the world offers us, what the news offers us. There's a greater story that is, that is powerful but intimate, that stretches back to our past but ahead to our future. And it anchors in the one who is the original rebuilder, who wasn't Nehemiah, but is God himself. When sin entered into the world, God didn't say, well, that's too bad. I guess I'll start on Mars or something like that. No, he, he said, this is not good. And so he began a work of restoring, and he called a man named Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. Your family's going to change the world, and I'm going to follow you and work through you. And that from that family line, a person named Jesus was born, and Jesus on the cross in his brokenness became the greatest picture of the depth that God would go to rebuild you. In Jesus' brokenness, you are rebuilt. In Jesus' resurrection, you see his strength for you. So we just invite you to stand as we sing this last song. And I just want to pray over us. You might extend a hand as a symbolic gesture saying, God, yes, I want to be a rebuilder. I want to have the heartache and know you can answer that. I'm willing. Spirit of God, come. Spirit of God, come. We open ourselves to you. We admit that we have doubts and confusions and we've walked the wrong way, but we know that you're not intimidated by any of that. We pray for Susanna Wesley's and Catherine Booth's and A.B. Simpson's and small and large scale in this room. We pray that no one counts themselves out. Spirit of God, convict and comfort. Heal and restore Rebuild us, we pray, according to your name. Amen.